cricket by myself. And all I had was a tennis ball and a ratty little bat, and so I think I'm a champion. I turn up at the nets for tryouts, and suddenly there's this red thing that people are throwing down, and it's coming down pretty fast, and this red thing, a cricket ball, is hard. And I bat in the nets, and I am terrible. Uh, I clearly don't make the team. My high expectations brought about great disappointment, but they also led to resolve, because for the next 12 months, I said, I am going to get myself a hard ball, and uh, I'm going to work out someone who can throw it to me, and I'm going to improve. And so disappointment can really drive achievement. But alternatively, we know that when we're disappointed, it can go in the other direction too. We can continually just say, oh, I don't want to be disappointed, so I'll just lower my expectations. And so we cannot push ourselves, we can find an excuse for others, we can overcome ongoing disappointment by just not expecting anything from anyone else. Now, most of us sort of try and always land in the middle between low expectations or high expectations. We say things like, well, we're going to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Or we sort of say, well, as long as we put in our best effort, then that's all I can do. Most of us have to try and measure our expectations to navigate through life without being overly disappointed. But there's nowhere to hide, is there? The expectations that we have on ourselves expectations that are placed on others, they're they're constantly pouring on us. We might want to sort of escape, and if we sort of think about uh, that alone show that's, uh, you know, placing people totally removed from existence, we sort of think, well, maybe there there's going to be no expectations. But even if you sort of run away from everyone else, you always leave something or someone behind, and the expectations from self-build and perhaps the expectations from others will return. Wherever we are, we're going to have neighbours around us who have expectations about our behaviour in putting out the rubbish or controlling our noise. No matter how busted or fragile our family is, we are all born into this world with some kind of familial relationships. And in our workplaces, there are others who need us or things that we need from others, it's going to mean that there's a whole range of expectations that life brings on us. Expectations are inescapable. And so as you think about your expectations for life, where do you sort of sit on these spectrums? Do you tend towards more lower expectations or higher? Are your expectations realistic or more unrealistic? Are your expectations of others increasing or are they decreasing? No, none of us are immune to to self-expectations. No one is, is exempt from the expectations of others and not even Jesus himself could escape the reality of people placing expectations on him. Expectations that may have been realised, others that were unfulfilled. And so as we continue following the life of Jesus. Uh, We see that the crowds are swelling. They're continuing to follow him around. They've obviously think that he's got something worth hearing. And as words of his miraculous signs gets out and his teaching spreads, there's also a growing hostility. The religious leaders of the day, they're growing in animosity towards him because he's not meeting their expectations. And so in our passage today, we start to see how Jesus responds 
to the expectations around him. And what is clear in our passage today is that Jesus had firm expectations for his life. His outlook for the future was crystal clear as to his place in God's plan. And that affected the way that he related to others' expectations of him. We hear in Jesus' words today that he is clear that his life has a purpose. And this is coming back off uh, the preceding bit in chapter 12 where Jesus encouraged the crowd to be ready, ready for the day that the master returns. And what it looked like to be ready, Jesus said, was to be watchful like a servant in a household waiting for the master to return from the wedding banquet. Be ready. Be watchful. And so now Jesus builds an expectation for what his disciples should expect as they wait for Jesus' return. And now the structure of our passage today, verses 49 through to 59, looks a little bit like this, 49 to 53. It gives clarity that Jesus was expecting to die. Verses 54 to 46 is this sort of warning and dismay that Jesus has that people don't know the times. And in verses 57 to 59, there is an emphasis on the urgency to be reconciled to God. And now this focus that Jesus had about the centrality of his death, we've seen it really clearly from chapter 9 when after Jesus asked Peter who to he say that I am, and Jesus, Peter said, you are the Messiah, and Jesus turns towards Jerusalem, where his death would eventually unfold. But from verse 49, we see that Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. And now this idea of fire is an allusion to judgment. It's a strong image in the Old Testament about God's response to unbelief, a judgment that consumes rebellion and evil. It's this image of something that's very decisive and final. And so Jesus is clear that he's come to right all the wrongs, for true justice to be delivered, for holiness to consume unholiness, now, I know it's a real scorcher of a day, but normally this time of year is the time for fires. We had one on Father's Day where all the sort of limbs from our palm tree that we've been storing up as they fall down, we put them in the fire pit and they're consumed. At some point, we're going to need a massive fire on the paddock because we've got a lot of wood that needs to get burned up there. We can smell it in the air as the back burning's happening to prepare the regional areas for bushfire season. Fire consumes things. And so Jesus says that his return that will bring a judgment is going to be a consuming event. Now, is Jesus really saying this? It sort of sounds a little bit masochistic, you know, enjoying the demise of others. Didn't Jesus say something about coming not to judge the world but to save it? How does this reconcile with that? Well, what we see here in verse 49 is Jesus' desire for wickedness and evil to end. That's what the final judgment on his return will bring, an end to all the atrocities in this world, the inequalities and abuses that this world brings about. And at Jesus' return, he'll bring judgment on everything that is evil. 
And so he's focused that that is the purpose of his life. And so he alludes to here this baptism that he is yet to undergo. But, but didn't Jesus get baptised by John the Baptist? Didn't we see that back in Luke chapter 3? Well, yes, Jesus was baptised in water by John. The heavens opened and the Spirit came down and Jesus was baptised by the Spirit. But we see here that this baptism that he's yet to undergo is the baptism of his death. Now, in the Old Testament, plenty of the Psalms talk about water as an act of judgment. Uh, we think of the, the, the cleansing that happened in Genesis with, with the flood. And so Jesus is looking forward to the cross when he would die for sin, when judgment would be brought. And so Jesus is fully expectant of his death. It's a shadow that looms over his life. And he's looking forward to the day when he will return and his reign will come. You see, it's in Jesus' death that salvation is offered, a death for sin. Now, this is very different to the expectations of the crowds. As Jesus is healing in powerful ways, as he's speaking with profound words, they're expecting a king. They're expecting victory and prosperity. But here, Jesus says, no, 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 I'm expecting death. So it's helpful for us to think as, as we navigate life, what are our expectations for Jesus? Is our natural disposition that Jesus is going to make things better for us now? Or do we have a sense that perhaps his timeline is a little bit different? Perhaps Jesus is in touch with where our heart goes. Verse 51, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Now, Jesus was prophesied by Isaiah to be the Prince of Peace, right? But Jesus is explicit. He's also somehow the Prince of Division. And the difference is all about timings. Division now and peace then. Jesus is giving his followers clear expectations it's, it's emphatic no to peace now for those who are listening to Jesus. And Jesus drills down on this statement by showing its impact on the, the closest and most solid of human institutions, the family. Families will be divided. There will be pain. Jesus here is showing that the division comes between those whose allegiance is ultimately to him as opposed to those who want to split their allegiances elsewhere. And so loyalty to Jesus will be ultimately exposed at his return. And so if we think about what that might look for us, I think there's this sort of little, little graph here that as Jesus is moving from death to his second return, the time that we live in is a time of decision. Are you for Jesus or against Jesus? That'll be the division. And for those who are yes to Jesus, there will be this ultimate peace when he returns. And so the division falls in relation to where judgment falls. You see, judgment on sin is either absorbed by Jesus himself on the cross or by us. Jesus is emphatic here. There's a crisis coming. And he really can't believe that those who are listening to him can't see it. In verses um, 
54 to 56, there's sort of this dismay and this implicit warning that they can't see what's happened. And it's this reference to, to knowing the weather but not seeing what Jesus is about. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm always on the Bureau of Meteorology app. Uh, the weather massively shapes my decisions in a whole range of things. But for them who didn't have the app, they could tell that when there's clouds over the Mediterranean and there's a wind coming off the Negev, then a storm is coming. And when a storm's coming, you've got to prepare, don't you? Uh, some of you might have seen the trench that's being dug out the front there. We're actually going to get a light that works onto the sign so that people can see the sign that we've got out the front at night time. Anyway, uh, a guy from Ashfield who's an electrician uh, was coming to hook it up and uh, he was coming and he said, oh, Danny, can I come a little bit earlier? I just looked at the radar and there's a big storm coming and I'm on my motorbike. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you're on a motorbike, you're pretty exposed. The weather makes a difference. It makes a difference to your plans if you prepare for the circumstances. And so the circumstances that Jesus is saying is division is coming, you need to make a decision. You can't just wait and see. There's an urgency to respond to what Jesus is offering because Jesus will return and provide a final division. It'll be either those who align with him or those who stand opposed to him. You're either for Jesus or against him. And Jesus' desire is that all would be reconciled to, ha- to God, that all would have peace. We see that in verses 57 to 59 with this weird little parable, which sort of emphasises the time for decision-making. It's an image of being urgent <laughs> to be reconciled. There's this debtor who's been thrown into prison and thinking, oh, that's the worst of it, I'm just in prison. But little do they realise that they're not going to be released until all the money that they owe has been paid back. That's why Jesus emphasises this, every last penny is paid back. And a little bit like uh, Sydney uh, fraudster, Melissa Caddick, who uh, racked up this massive debt uh, and has um, gone missing or, or dead, the money that she owes... It can't be covered by her assets. Those people who are in debt to her, even her family, they're not going to be made good. And so Jesus is emphasising the urgency to actually respond to him now. He's saying, don't sort of risk going to trial with God because like Melissa Caddick, you actually don't have enough assets to cover the debt that you owe. Don't sort of try and roll the dice with the, the judge of the universe or be deluded that you're pretty good at arguing, so you might be able to come up with a good defence and argue your way out of it on that final day. When the judge, Jesus, returns, everyone will be called to account for the very last penny. And it's a difficult message to hear, but Jesus is emphasising that this judgement, it's severe. It's a judgment against everything in our life, public and private, the the wrongs that we've done and the goods that we've failed to do. And so Jesus says, don't wait to try and risk it at trial. The time for settling accounts with God is now. And so now is decision time. Be reconciled to God. And And the means of being reconciled to God is us coming to him with a guilty plea. It's a repentance. It's us admitting that we need Jesus to pay our debt. 
It's a request that judgment would be borne by him, not us. In the next chapter that we'll look at next week, uh, it says, unless you repent, you too will all perish, Jesus says. You know, we're getting into summer. You sort of know those days when the storm's brewing, it's really muggy. And even though the sky's blue, even if you haven't looked at the bomb app, you sort of get this sense that, there's something big coming and then as the wind picks up and the big black clouds come in and the thunder starts crackling, you know a storm's on your way and the smart thing to do is to get out of the storm. I remember the other year when I was having a beer down at Akasha in Five Dock with a guy on a Saturday afternoon and I'd ridden my bike there and, um, you know, he's sort of in this tin shed and sort of can't really see the weather and then suddenly it's like it's like really dark. You're like, oh, it's really dark out there. Maybe she get going home. Oh, no, she'll be right. It wasn't right. Like I'm riding back on my bike in the heaviest rain I've ever experienced. Like just absolute deluge. Now, luckily for me, I could just <laughs> take all my clothes off and have a warm shower and be okay. But Jesus is saying, make a decision now. Because there'll be a time when it's too late. And so when we receive Jesus as Lord and we accept this offer of peace, we have the great hope that we are reconciled to God. And so what do we expect as we seek to follow Jesus now? Well, I think we've got two things. We expect peace then, and we also expect division now. So what does it mean for us to expect that there'll be division in our life? Well, I think it's different to looking for division. This analogy about families being broken apart, it's not encouraging us as followers to try and create divisions. It's not to rejoice when families and friendships divide. It's not like, you know, lunchtime at the school when the kids have to pick the teams and we sort of delight that we're on the good team and, you know, other people are on the not-so-good team. God doesn't pick a team based on ability. We don't have the hope of peace because we are smarter or that we are somehow more privileged in and of ourselves. As God's people, we are to not try and emphasise or create public divisions as though that really pleases Jesus. You know, I've shown my allegiance to Jesus because no one likes me. It's not looking for division, but it's not being surprised by it either. If you're loyal to Jesus, you should expect some divisions to come around you. Relationships will certainly change if we have different priorities to others. And for those whom we're closest to in our families and our friendships and in our workplaces, there's always a battle for loyalty. Remember that concentric circle? People have values. And if those values are opposed, then there'll be division. And so divisions over our decision of yes for Jesus aren't something that we should be surprised by. They are something that we should expect. And at some level, it does confirm and remind us that we have said yes to Jesus. We are different to those who haven't. If nothing is different, if there is no divisions in our life, 
then we maybe need to reassess, have we actually made a clear decision for Jesus? And is that clear decision for Jesus actually shaping every other decision in our life? Like that guy I started working with at Julux, it was just so obvious that every aspect of his life was under the lordship of Jesus. He didn't care that everyone else in the organisation sort of mocked him. He was just clear about who his loyalty was to. And so sometimes the divisions might be small. It might be in a household where we want to say grace before dinner and others don't. Perhaps it's where money's spent in the family budget or what's done with free time. But we can also expect that there's going to be bigger divisions. When our parents take offence to our yes for Jesus. When our decisions to follow Jesus seems to bring shame on the family name. When our family unit sort of says that we are insulting the cultural heritage of our people. These big divisions are going to be hard. Divisions that may be combative, they may feel relentless. And there are going to be these really tricky situations where it's not obvious how we both express that we love family and friends and work colleagues, but we hold different values and we hold different values for what we think is good for them. Division can create circumstances that are really heartbreaking within families, within friendships, within work colleagues and neighbours. I think Jesus' message here is don't try and create division. Don't celebrate division. But don't be surprised by it. Expect it. And division's not what we're ultimately pursuing. God is ultimately casting our eyes to pursue peace. When division comes, it's it's easy when we're hurt to just revel in bitterness. But friends, I think the encouragement is to use the real pain that division brings us to just long more for peace. The thing that you had in that relationship that is now lost... The, the, the hopes that you had for this relationship to, to, fruition, to come to fruition that have died, use that longing to look forward to the hope that is secured in the intimacy that is found with peace with Christ. You see, when Jesus returns, all who have said yes to Jesus will dwell with Jesus and he'll say yes to his people when he returns. So the message today is we expect division as we're following Jesus, but we pursue ultimate peace. But I think we can also pursue temporary peace. It's not a peace that compromises our yes to Jesus, but we can make some compromises of preferences to keep the peace with our friends, our family and in our workplace. I remember not long after becoming a follower of Jesus around 18 at one of my close schoolmates, we're just around all our mates' place over summer break, just you know, doing nothing. You know, he's just like, just shut up about the Jesus stuff, man. I'm like, all right, like, I, I, I'm probably a bit over the top. So I just, just went easy, didn't talk about it. We're still friends 25 years later. The relationship's still there. 
And there's been lots of opportunities where it's like, actually, you're going that way. Me saying yes to Jesus, I'm out of there. But it doesn't mean that cast him off. (laughs) Still opportunities to pursue peace, to express love, for opportunities for him to have ultimate peace. God's desire isn't for his people to withdraw from the world into their little holy huddles. God's desire, we're going to get this, is that everyone in the world would experience peace with him. And so if we are going to expect division, I think it has major implications for us as the church, both internally for each other and externally to the world. Firstly, it's important for us who have said yes to Jesus to support those who, by their yes to Jesus, have been divided from family support, who somewhat become unemployable in their work industry. You see, when members of the body of Christ are removed from other sources of relational, social or financial support, our love for one another is to be a foretaste of that future peace. For that to be a reality, church can't be a periodic event that we attend, a people that we see when it's convenient. It's to be a foretaste and a preview of this future solid family unit. Secondly, I think it has an external impact. As God's people now to be a foretaste of this future reality, for those who are still in this the moment of decision, because that's where they're at, where they stand with Jesus. The church community offers a great preview of what's on offer. And that preview is as we testify to the new life that is found, that we've experienced when we've said yes to Jesus. The change that he's brought about, the forgiveness that has been received, the new outlook that we have, And as we start to grow as a people embodying new priorities, the world can see, oh, maybe I might need to reevaluate my decision on Jesus. And so we we talked a lot about us as a community that is going to be transformed. We might just uh, flick through these quickly. But we have this opportunity to demonstrate a preview of what God is preparing in the future. And that preview is a community that is turning from self-rule towards continually being ruled by our gracious King. A community that's not exclusive, but we welcome people. We're not asking people to sit an entrance exam. There's no waiting list for the church. We're a people who is not about accruing items and material possessions for self, but are seeing our possessions and our time as a means of providing for others. And we can be a community that is committed to one another, to lifting up the concerns, the fears and the pains for one another. A community where people can clearly say the door always feels open, no matter how long I've been away. Or the message is always responded to when I ask for some assistance. Or that invitations are frequently extended by others. 
And what's going to keep us distinct is where our devotion comes from, where our expectations are forged. And I think it's that next one, Micah, that we are to be a community that has expectations that are established by God rather than the world, where our realistic expectations are shaped by the Creator rather than by us as the creatures, our own experience or our own intuition. And then a community that is committed to using what we've been given so that we can work alongside what God is doing in and through other people. A community that is increasingly not surprised by division, but embodies this longing for the ultimate peace. Friends, we're going to uh, spend some time singing in response to that, and then there'll be an opportunity for some questions and comments. I'm going to pray before we sing. Our loving Father, we thank you that there is great hope, a great hope of restoration and peace with you. Father, help us to have right expectations for the age that we live in until you return that there will be divisions within families and friendships and workplaces and neighbourhoods. May we not rejoice and celebrate in them, but may they be a catalyst for many more to make the decision for Jesus. And may you strengthen us to have a resolve to continually say yes to Jesus and to long for the peace that is found